Hello and welcome to Sound On Sight, your weekly dose of film talk, news, and reviews. This week we have special guests, uh, Sean Dwyer and Jay Cheel from Film Junk, based over in St. Catharines, Ontario. Uh, because they're from St. Catharines and we're from Montreal, we decided on a Canadian theme this week, so we will be revisiting the career of famed Torontonian David Cronenberg, starting with 1983's Videodrome and 1986's The Fly. <laughs> Welcome to Sound on Sight. My name is Simon. To my right. My name is Ricky D. And over in St. Catharines, are you guys there? Yes, we are here. Excellent. I'm Sean. And I am Jay. Excellent. Sean and Jay from the Film Junk Podcast. I've been listening to your podcast for roughly, I would say, just over a year and a half. Yeah, a friend of mine. Well, actually, it was a mutual listener of ours that introduced me to you guys. You know, we've I don't know if you guys know our history, but we used to record from CJLO. It's Concordia's radio station here in Montreal. And we can't record a CJLO anymore, mostly due to some scheduling conflicts. But in a way, it kind of lets us be a little bit more free to have guests appear on our show. So it was due time that I finally sent out an email to the guys at Film Junk to ask if they can, you know, guest cameo because it's great. I mean, it's like I think you guys are like, if I'm not mistaken, the longest running film podcast on the Internet. Like, I think you guys are even older than film spotting, right? Um, I don't know about that. I think film spotting may have been around before us, but yeah, definitely. We just did our 300th episode. So I know you guys are at 250, which is pretty awesome too, but yeah, but we cheat um, because we record more than one a week. Film spotting is only like 255. So you guys are way older than film spotting. Really? I don't know. I mean, I think, uh, years, like if you look at the years, I think they may have been there before us, but maybe you're um, just more productive. (laughs) Probably could be be. more prolific. You could say, (laughs) but, um, Actually, there's a specific reason why I chose you guys to guest host on this week's show. As I mentioned, we left CJLO, so Simon and I were trying to figure out a way to best record a show from our secret station here in Montreal. We won't tell anyone where the location is. And uh, I remember that Sean wrote up an article on Film Junk a while back about how to go about recording a podcast from home and the best way to go about doing it. And you actually listed some of the equipment you used. And so Simon and I were trying to decide, do we go digital? Do we stick with the analog machines and use the, uh, what do you call them, XLR microphones? And I remember that you actually wrote up this article on Film Junk. So I Googled it, found the article. And so, you know, who would have known that like a year later, your article actually helped us continue our show. So thank you. Oh, well, no problem. Glad to hear it's uh, serving someone. <laughs> All right. But uh, actually, it's funny that you mentioned that because we've been doing the analog thing for a while now, but... I think we're actually considering going digital now as well. So. Oh, really? Uh, oh, yeah, well, we may well, have to thanks. update the guide. <laughs> thanks a lot <laughs> for telling us now. <laughs> You're outdated now. Sorry. Oh, damn it. Uh, let's just pack it up. All right. So what better way to do a show with two of the oldest uh, Canadian film podcasts than to, I guess, look at the career of one of our 
favorite Canadian filmmaker is David Cronenberg. Yeah. Now, it's not the first time we've dealt with David Cronenberg, as I recall. We've, we've done a Cronenberg show before. We, did, uh, we talked about Dead Ringers. Episode and, uh, 100 of Sound and Sight, which is when we switched over from our right, previous yeah. name, The Naked Lunch. We did a Cronenberg special, and we also reviewed The Brood a while back on Sorted Cinema. Yeah, so we, we've we've covered a good deal of uh, Cronenberg, but there's two of his most talked about films we've, we've never discussed. And the first of them is uh, Videodrome, which is, is sort of considered the last of his independent features. Uh, of course, after this, he went on to do uh, the Stephen King adaptation... Uh, Dead Zone. The, the Dead Zone, and uh, with Christopher Walken, and after that he did The Fly, which we'll, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, let's hear the trailer. Why would anybody watch a scum show like Videodrome? Why did you watch it, Max? Business reasons. Sure. What about the other reasons? Max Wren is a victim. I woke up with a headache. He has been exposed to Videodrome. I've been hallucinating for a while, ever since... What? Since I first saw Videodrome. His brain is already receiving video images. I think that massive doses of Videodrome signal will ultimately produce and control hallucination to the point that it will change human reality. Soon, his visions will coalesce and become uncontrollable flesh. Videodrome is seducing Max Wren. Please, come to me now. Come to Nikki. And Max Wren can do nothing to stop it. What makes you think I need help? None of our test subjects has returned to normality. Television can change your mind. Videodrome will change your body. Long live the new flesh. Now, that was the, uh, well, most of the trailer for David Cronenberg's 1983 film Videodrome. Uh, it stars James Woods, Sonia Smits, and Daryl Hannah, and Woods plays Max Wren, the sleazy producer of a low-rent TV station that specializes in sex and violence. That is until uh, Wren discovers something even more sadistic uh, that he calls, the, that is called the Videodrome. And that's a tricky concept to explain, so I'm going to shy away from it for now. Uh, now, Sean, um, this is considered by many people that I've read, uh, since it's sort of the last of his independent uh, features, although not the last one to be shot in Canada by any means, um, and a lot of those people consider it to be his best up to that point, at least. Do you think that's true? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not really, I wouldn't really say I'm like a Cronenberg expert, and certainly there's a lot of his earlier stuff I still haven't seen. But this one always stands out to me as like one of his movies that I feel like a lot of people still haven't seen. But like even watching it now, I mean, yeah, it was it was made in 1983, but watching it now, I feel like it still has a lot of relevance. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting, especially how um, dealing with, uh, you know, pirating TV signals and stuff like that. And like, you know, that kind of stuff, no one talks about anything like that anymore because obviously we have the Internet. But I think a lot of the, the concepts and the ideas in this movie are still very relevant. And, uh, yeah, I mean, awesome special effects, um, some great performances. And uh, just, you know, I guess the fact that it's 
a genre movie that makes you think, which is, I guess, what Cronenberg is really known for. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's definitely one of my favorites of his. Now, Rick, I can see you've got a pile of notes, so I'm going to let you carry on. Yeah, you know, whenever I really love a movie, I end up, like, writing these long-ass reviews. Uh, When I first saw Videodrome, I actually wasn't a big fan. I liked it, but I didn't love it. But in hindsight, I think it's actually one of his best movies. And like the best of Cronenberg films, it deals with several things all at once. On the surface, it's like a morality tale involving, like, the sleazy cable TV producer who's basically searching for ways to boost his ratings, even if it's like something sexual and perverse. And, uh, you know, it's also a fast-paced neo-noir story about a cocky anti-hero who stumbles onto something seriously disturbing. And I don't know, like, Cronenberg's obsession with relationships between, like, machinery and flesh and, you know, all his usual themes are present in in a Videodrome. But I, I think Sean's onto something. I think... Um, you know, Cronenberg was ahead of his time with Videodrome. I mean, like like he touched upon like piracy, et cetera, et cetera, and, and just his uh, or society's reliance and or obsession on media. And I think it's a really it's really interesting to look back at a film made in 1983. That's when its themes are still very relevant today, like two decades later. Um, so I don't know. I think it's like, you know, it's a really good genre film uh, virtual reality sci-fi horror i guess you can uh, label it and um i don't know it's it's sort of audacious especially for its time it's 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 it definitely i think boosted cronenberg from being like a director that you know genre enthusiasts looked upon to someone that everyone looked at has like wow like look at what this guy is doing like even if you don't like his work it still caused a lot of like you know, discussion around the dinner table amongst like movie buffs. And um, I think it, it announced his true importance as a filmmaker. And what's really odd about Videodrome is that it was technically supposed to be his mainstream movie. Like this was supposed to be his breakthrough into the mainstream. Yeah, go figure. Um, the thing I like about Videodrome is it kind of sums up everything about Cronenberg, at least the, the Cronenberg of that era. Um, it kind of hits all of his obsessions. So it, it's the perfect go-to film for maybe someone who's wanting to explore his filmography and, and is kind of new to Cronenberg's work. You, you, give them, you give them Videodrome, and it's the perfect summary of kind of what his obsessions and themes are. Mm-hmm. Um, and as, you know, I'm a, also a big horror fan, and... As a horror fan, I, I think I like it because it's so um, subversive, and he—you know—he's—he's he's just purposely pushing buttons and having fun doing it. So it doesn't really hold back any punches. Um, it's challenging everything about the the genre and about people who maybe have negative feelings towards the genre and. It's challenging those people by both pushing the limits of the imagery and the themes, but also making something that's smart. So uh, it's it's not as easy to, I think, rip a film like Videodrome apart. Um, so I, I really appreciate it on that level. And I mean, I'm I'm like Sean. I'm not a Cronenberg expert, but uh, I mean. I'm a, definitely a fan of his work, and um, you know, you see a lot of his stuff, his his previous films coming through in Videodrome. But the the awesome thing is just you know seeing 
Toronto on the screen uh, not being hidden or disguised as some other city, um, which, you know, he, he does uh, every once in a while. But, you know, I, I think in The Fly, uh, I believe that kind of takes place. I don't know if they actually say it. There's, there's a scene in, in The Fly where you can see Toronto printed on the side of, a, of like a police car or something. I, I seem to remember. Oh, that. really? I, they don't they don't really go out of their way to show it's Toronto, but at the same time, they don't hide it. They don't yeah. hide it. Yeah. yeah, and I like that. I, I like that idea of a Canadian film that doesn't really, it just exists in Canada. Like, it, it doesn't push the Canadian aspect to the point where it feels like they almost did it to get some extra money from the government or something. Mm-hmm. But it also doesn't hide the fact that it's in Canada. Yeah, I'm, I... Th- so, it, as, as a Canadian and as a horror fan... Uh, I it's almost like a, a Videodrome is almost like a, a element of pride. Like I, I, it's awesome to have a such a great genre film come out of Canada. Um, I, actually, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think just about all of Cronenberg's films are set in a Canadian city up until Crash, uh, up to, up until and including Crash. I well, think. that's that's because he started dealing with the Hollywood system and his financing was coming from Hollywood right. producers. Um, and yeah, although except for I guess Rabbit is set in Montreal. Yeah, uh, but but um, the Videodrome isn't my favorite Cronenberg film. I think the reason is most. I think it's mostly uh, on a script level. I think the direction is is fantastic, and boy, do I love uh, Rick Baker's makeup. We'll uh, talk about that more in a second. I'm sure. I think my problem with Videodrome is that it it's, it tends a little towards the preachy side, a little bit more than Cronenberg is accustomed to. I mean, he's a lot of the film is about desensitization, uh, and it is for most of the runtime. Obviously, it goes off the rails in some other directions near the end, um, but uh, for me, it was hammering that a little bit too hard. I think also something that the movie is missing for me is uh, here we have James Woods as, as Max Aran, our protagonist, and he doesn't cut as memorable a figure to me as some of his other protagonists do really wow because i think it's one of his best performances and i mean you're kind of sort of right i think because like you know cronenberg does recycle ideas from his previous films i I think it's just a little bit more outrageous a little bit more bizarre and a little bit more disturbing than his previous films So, so that's why i think it like you know it sticks to you a little bit more so maybe that's why you see it has been preachy uh, but this film has it all, you know, everything from the kinky talk show hostess played by Deborah Harry to the expanding rubber TV sets to the bizarre religious cults and the plot to take over the world. I mean, but it also like you got to remember, it also predates the Matrix and its exploration of, of of our flesh and blood world merging with cyberspace. There's a lot going on in Videodrome. Mm-hmm. I don't know, like like, you know, it. it it, it walks through some crude territory of pornography, like snuff films. Uh, I, it's not my favorite Cronenberg film either, for sure, but I still think it's, you know, probably one of his best. Do you think it's his best of, like, that period of his? Uh, this comes before Dead Ringers, am I correct? Dead Ringers was the yeah, 90s? Yeah, it's like six or seven years before Dead Ringers. Uh, you know what? I would have to say that's a tough question. I love Cronenberg because um, I love Rabbit personally. I think that's a yeah. Really I love Rabbit film. too. Um, I, I I think yes. I think Videodrome in many ways is his best film. I mean, you talked about the effects by Rick Baker. I mean, which holy holy crap! Yeah, I mean that that in itself was like, I mean, for its time, like it's it's pretty effective. Uh, I don't know. Like, you know, I, I'll, I'm going to let Sean and Jay come back in a second. But according to Cronenberg, he had to rush the script into production before he actually had a final draft due to like fi- financial like issues. So the script actually evolved during the shoots. And so 
he ended up changing the screenplay has, you know, every day when he was on set. And so he was always reworking, refining, remaking things during production. And sometimes in, even in the middle of a scene. So I think as a result, it's more of like an instinctual kind of filmmaking. It's like it feels a little bit more organic. And uh, I kind of appreciate that. Like, that's one of the things I like about Videodrome. Like, it really, at the end of the day, it doesn't really make much sense. But it's it's one hell of an interesting film. I, I would actually, I think I'd say it's his best film of the 80s, um, mainly for the reasons I, I expressed before. And I, I mean, I kind of agree that it is a little preachy, I guess, and and uh, hits things over the head pretty bluntly. But I, I, it seems to me that that's kind of part of the whole concept of, um, you know, just extreme programming and extreme filmmaking and the response to extreme filmmaking. And, and everything about the concept is extreme. So I would imagine that the characters and their ideals and, and the world within the film would would reflect those extremes as well. Um so I, I I didn't really have a problem with that, and uh, I I just think it it's just an, a, a unique film. Like it's got a lot of images in it that uh, I haven't seen before, and and some better than others. Like I'm not really some of them are. I think some of the images are just as uh, over the top and preachy. Like the the image of the chest mm-hmm. in the the TV set was I think a little bordering on like. Uh, film school art film <laughs> material or something, but um, just the stuff of like the VHS tape being put into the chest and, and things like that. And I, I loved how his apartment um, was always kind of lit with that extreme Venetian blind look, which is like, you know, so overused in the 80s, but at first I was like that's that's a really weird choice and almost an ugly choice but it makes that it just makes this whole apartment look like a, a TV screen like the scan lines on a TV screen I, I thought images like that were just interesting choices so I, I think it's just a good representation of Cronenberg's style um, so for me I, I would say it's probably well it's one of his strongest films of the 80s i really like the fly as well mm-hmm. um, see I, I agree with you and I, we're going to talk about the fly a little later on in the show but I, I really do think it's his best film of the 80s and i completely agree that the film depends heavily on its imagery and its creepy visual effects and once again going back to rick baker who did an incredible job on you know like everything like i mean for example james woods grows a vagina in his stomach and inserts a gun into his wound i mean that will forever be etched in my memory <laughs> like i saw this movie for the first time when i was like you know really young so that's something i'll never forget um sean i want to ask you about james woods so i'm a fan of james woods in the film simon not so much where do you stand on his performance uh well i think it's a great performance i kind of see what simon's saying in the sense that like you almost kind of forget that he's in Videodrome. At least I I did initially, and then sort of rewatching it, I was like, oh yeah, wow, this he, this really is one of his best performances. But like when I just when you think Videodrome in your head, it's just there's certain images that stick out, but it's like he does not necessarily stick out in your mind. And I don't know, maybe it's just because the images are so strong that. Mm-hmm. He kind of gets left in the dust, but I mean, I think he does a great job. Well, what I really like about him is that he really handles his character well to the point where you actually some sort of like his character. Like he 
does sort of seem to be a nice guy, but he's also sort of really sleazy and like he's sort of like a scum if you think about it. But he still like shows like his human side and and, and I think that's kind of what I appreciated about his performance. Like I thought it was like well balanced. But Yeah, I, well actually I was just like it's interesting that, you know, like um Simon, you were saying that the the movie feels kind of preachy and then like the fact that James Woods, you know, I guess initially kind of seems like a bad guy, but I feel like the movie really, it kind of lets you decide either way. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's interesting that I agree. There is definitely this feel that the whole movie is about, you know, violence in media and how it can, you know, be bad for you and, you know, stuff like that. But then you got to think like, this is a Cronenberg movie. He's probably, you know, even at that point in his career had, you know, I'm sure had to answer for things like that and had people, you know, accusing him of being way too graphic in his movies. So, I mean, I don't really think that's a point of view he was trying to push in the movie. I think that it just kind of, it plays both sides. And even James Wood's character, like he, yes, he is, you know, kind of trying to go for the lowest common denominator uh, programming that's just really edgy just because, you know, he wants the attention and because nobody else will put it out there. But at the same time, he is kind of breaking new ground and you kind of, in a weird way, admire him for that, I guess. Yeah. Like, uh, I don't know. I mean, personally, I, th- I thought it was pretty... I, I didn't feel like I-, I sympathized with the James Woods character nearly as much as I do with most of his uh, protagonists, even the creepy twins in Dead Ringers, frankly. Um, not that he's necessarily trying to engender sympathy, um, but I didn't feel like there was quite as much of the moral ambiguity that I, that I take so much pleasure in, uh, in, in his other films. That being said, I, I still really like this film. Mm-hmm. Um, to me though, it's mostly, it's mostly just a pleasure on a, on a, on a sensory level. Yeah, but you know what? It still offers one of the most chilling climaxes in his career. Uh, of like out of all his movies, I, I mean, maybe aside from The Brood, because the climax in The Brood is really intense. But uh, it's I think it's a remarkable film, and the fact that it still continues to be debated and analyzed like decades later says something about the movie. I think it's a strong movie, it's a smart movie, and it's definitely memorable. Um, and the only problem with Videodrome is that when it was released, it had some really bad marketing. I mean, we heard a clip from the trailer earlier. The trailer is bizarre. Well, it's because they made the movie look like it was like a rock and roll film simply because it starred Deborah Harry. Like, it was like the worst marketing ever. So it was like, of course, like it bombed at the box office. But uh, we'll wrap it up. And I just want to say, if anyone hasn't seen the Criterion release of Videodrome, I highly recommend picking it up. Film, just purchase the film. Don't even rent it. Like, they did a really good job with the transfer, with the with the special features. You even get to see Cronenberg's short film called Camera. Also, the version has restored footage that was taken out from the original film back in the 80s because uh, it was deemed too explicit by the uh, MPAA. Shocking, right? <laughs> All right. So uh, before we're going to take a break, before we take a break, can you guys just let our listeners know where they can find you guys online? Sure, you can uh, find us over at filmjunk.com, and uh, Jay also runs the documentaryblog.com. All right, so that's filmjunk.com, and you guys are also on Twitter, Facebook, etc. Twitter.com slash filmjunk, twitter.com slash jcheel. All right, so I guess uh, the theme for the show is... Uh, Canadian music. Today. Canadian music, so we got some Canadian music coming up. Simon, what do we have? Yeah, we got the Luyas. And the song's called Too Beautiful to Work, and when we come back, we're going to have a re- review of David Cronenberg's The Fly. Take it as a single situation 
I want you to go through. I want to teleport you as soon as possible, right now. I feel incredible. Ronnie, I hardly need to sleep anymore, and I feel wonderful. It's like a drug, but a perfectly pure and benign drug. The power I feel surging inside me, and I want to be able to wear you out. We'll be the perfect couple, the dynamic duo. Come on, right now. No, hey, wait. Don't give me that born-again teleportation rap. I, I told you I'm scared to do it. What do I have to say? I'm not going to do it. You're a fucking drag, you know that? Something went wrong, Seth. When you went through, something went wrong. No, not you. You're too chicken shit to be a member of the Dynamic Duo Club. Okay, then great. I'll find somebody else. Somebody who can keep up with me. Seth, you have to listen to me. You're afraid to dive into the plasma pool, aren't you? You're afraid to be destroyed, recreated, aren't you? I bet you think that you woke me up about the flesh, don't you? But you only know society's straight line about the flesh. You can't penetrate beyond society's sick, gray fear of the flesh. Drink deep or taste not the plasma spring. See what I'm saying? I'm not just talking about sex and penetration. I'm talking about penetration beyond the veil of the flesh. A deep, penetrating dive into the plasma pool. That was a clip from David Cronenberg's 1986 film *The Fly*, which you might say was his proper mainstream debut with a, well, not an original concept, but at least not a concept taken from Stephen King. Uh, you heard Jeff Goldblum as the mad scientist and Gina Davis as the journalist who uh, sort of wins his heart, in a manner of speaking. And of course, uh, Jeff Goldblum's character is trying to master teleportation. And, uh, of course, winds up doing something rather different when he uh, gets into his telepod and a fly gets in as well. And he gradually transforms into something considerably different. Um, now, uh, uh, Rick, um, you were saying, I get, well, let's, let's just get right into it since we're talking about Cronenberg in the 80s. Mm-hmm. This, this film or, video, or Videodrome, gun to your head, make a pick. Well, I've watched a fly like maybe like nine times, so I'd always choose watching a fly over Videodrome. Is it a better film than Videodrome? You know, that's a whole different like. I mean, I think we already discussed Videodrome. I think Videodrome is a better film. I think Fly is a lot more fun to watch. I still think it's a great film. It's also easily his most commercial and successful motion picture of the '80s. I mean, it even got an Oscar for the uh, for the, for the makeup and effects. And, you know, like he, I, I think he managed to get like a, a decent budget, and he got some big stars. Uh, Jeff Goldblum being the biggest, of course, and um, it's 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 an interesting film because it's it's extremely depressing and tragic. And you know, I don't think of it as a remake. Think of it as a reimagination of the original sh- film and also of the original short story because he basically changes just about everything, even like the basic plot points. His film really focuses shocker on the slow transformation of Jeff Bo- Goldblum's character. You know, you get this like mad scientist uh, who transforms into like this creature, whereas like the original like uh, short and the original film, if I'm not mistaken, really focused a lot on the, you know, the damsel in distress and the freak show element of of the um, the story. But, uh, you know, it's Cronenberg. He's been fascinated with the uh, the idea of the human body changing in all its forms, be it mutation or being uh, through drug addiction, you name it. And uh, it's a Cronenberg film, and it's it's a really entertaining Cronenberg film. And I think he's a master of exploiting natural fears, especially through supernatural means. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of The Fly, and this is the one of the two that I actually saw in the 80s when I was a kid. So I have a bit more of a nostalgic connection to it. And 
I remember when I first saw it, it it really stood out to me because of the kind of sexual elements of it and the kind of graphic violence, um, mainly the arm wrestling scene. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. This movie, along with uh, Paul Verhoeven's films, like I, this and RoboCop are two films that, you know, seeing as a kid were very unusual experiences. So, and I still have fun watching it now mm-hmm. and appreciating it on other levels as well. So, and I agree that I don't think it's as good of a film as Videodrome, but it's definitely the the one that if it pops up on cable, you end up sitting and watching it. I, I think what makes The Fly special is it accomplishes something critical that most entries into the genre ignore, and that's character development and identification. We really get to know these characters before the bloodshed and other strange violence happens on screen. Uh, and I think you get to know the protagonists, and that's why I think it's sort of tragic. Um, so what do you think? Like, Do you sympathize more with the characters in The Fly as opposed to your problem with James Woods in, say, Videodrome? Uh, well, absolutely. I mean, I'm a huge Jeff Goldblum fan and I mean, he, it's, it's just awesome watching him in this movie. Like he's, he's funny and you want to root for him, but at the same time he can, he can kind of shock you when he he starts losing it. And, uh, I think him and, uh, Gina Davis have great chemistry together. And if I'm not mistaken, I think they were dating at the time or starting to yeah, had a relationship at the time. Well, they were in a relationship for like several years, like seven or nine years. So, but uh, during the 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 filming of the fly, yeah, they were in a relationship. Please tell me they didn't meet on the set of a David Cronenberg film. No, they did not meet on the set of a David Cronenberg film. But <laughs> they were cast on the same David Cronenberg film. Okay. But yeah, Jeff Goldblum is amazing. Like he's a great method actor, and he just buries himself in the part. Gina Davis, I'm not too big on her performance in the fly i think it works because of the chemistry between the two leads because they were dating in real life uh, but i do like it when she delivers the line be afraid be very afraid it's like one of those lines from the 80s that you'll just never forget yeah and apparently uh i mean it's been reused all over the place but yeah i didn't realize that this was actually the first the the origin of that line mm-hmm yeah, I, I love this movie. I'd actually never seen it before. We were review, reviewing it for uh, these purposes, and I'm really happy that I finally got around to it. Um, I agree that Jeff Goldblum is perfect in this movie. He's, And I think what's really important about this movie is, yeah, it's one of his first mainstream films, but I don't feel like there were any concessions made on his part to, to get this movie made. It's so violent. Uh, there's so many weird sexual undertones. And even though, yeah, he did cast people that were well-known, he cast the right people. I mean, Goldblum is so perfect for this. He's already got that wild-eyed, sort of bug-eyed quality even before he gets the insect in him. Yeah, his eyes are just crazy in this movie. Like, seriously, like, he looks like a bug. (laughs) Yeah. And just the way he delivers the dialogue, like, I'm an insect who dreamt he was a man and loved it, but now the dream is over and the insect is awake. And (laughs) and to to me, that's really what makes this movie work for me. It's, it's, It's not just that the... You know, the scenario is interesting, and there's all there's all kinds of things you can get into there. But also, the the dialogue is really witty. Mm-hmm. I think more so than than Videodrome and a lot of his early films. Uh, a lot of it is funny, and a lot of it is quite touching as well. I, I really do think that. I mean, it's hard to have a climax where you've got a giant, deformed insect walking around and have it be touching. <laughs> but I think the movie actually does manage that, and I think that makes it a very peculiar entertainment. I still think it's a little strange that he builds a teleportation device and it's supposed to change the world, but technically, like, you can only teleport from one side of the living room to the other side of the living room, and then he, like, kills the poor monkey. Like, that monkey could have walked across the living room five times before he got those machines to actually start working. <laughs> like, I mean, and, and why would he choose 
a, a monkey, like a bamboo, like aren't those like I'm assuming that if you're gonna purchase an animal like that, it must be pretty expensive. But like, you know that that animal can clean up his whole house by the time he gets his machine to work. But the whole baboon thing is worth it just for the scene where he gets drunk and he's like, you know what? I can tell you're all right. <laughs> yeah, I actually really do like that scene. Uh, but you know, jokes aside, I mean, this film can I, I think can be divided into three acts. Your first act is your like typical romance, you know, mad scientist meets a reporter and they start falling in love. Uh, and then the second act, I think, really mimics the aspects of a superhero origin, you know, as he starts disco- discovering his, like, newfound abilities. And then, of course, the third and the best act, the best part of the film is when it just descends into madness and really dives into, like, horror territory. And, uh, I mean, I love, like, the acid vomit, for example. Oh, my God. And, like, you know, the blood and gore is present. Once again, great, great effects and makeup. I said, like I said, one... Um, I won an Oscar for makeup. Jay, what do you, so like, I, I think you and I both watched it when we were in the 80s. Simon's a little too young. He's only like 14. Hey. So uh, did you rewatch it this week before coming on to the show? Yeah. And the, the one thing that I remember um, and watching it again and then remembering from when I thought as a kid as standing out to me is, you know, there's talk about the uh, sympathy towards Jeff Gold, Goldblum's character, but I always thought it was interesting the um, I can't remember the character's name now, but the bearded fellow, played by initially... uh, played by John Getz. Yeah, yeah. The, the guy who's kind of the asshole. Mm-hmm. Am I allowed to swear? Yeah, yes. you're allowed to swear. Oh yeah, <laughs> totally. The asshole. Um, <laughs> and then by the end of the film, you have that that showdown, and he's getting like his vomited on with acid, and he's trying to save Gina Davis, and. I always th- thought that was an interesting kind of um, uh, twist on, like, in terms of what I was feeling during the film. I, I actually sympathized with that guy near the end, even though he was such a jerk. And um, even though I realized that, you know, at, by that point, Jeff Goldblum's character is no longer really himself. But um, of course, it, I just thought that was a complex sort of um, shift in in emotions towards that sort of cliched jerk character i guess well it'd be like if um paul reiser's character in aliens ended up having some sort of moment where you know he actually had a chance to you know be a good guy actually uh just on the topic of like having sympathy for jeff goldblum apparently there was (laughs) (laughs) i love talking about having sympathy for jeff goldblum (laughs) well apparently there was a scene in the movie that they cut early on um, where he he when he was trying to find a cure for his condition he merged an alley cat and a monkey in the in the <laughs> teleporter and it like attacked him and he had to like beat it to death with a pipe or something wait the cat and attacked people... him on set for real no 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 in the movie oh in the movie like, <laughs> this creature that he created Rick really hates cats so he was hoping it was real um, I'm not, I don't hate cats I'm terrified of cats but anyhow back to Sean <laughs> Yeah, so I guess he, like, audiences really, like, thought that, you know, he was going too far, you know, in, in killing this poor creature that he had created, and, uh, you know, they really lost. Wait you know, a minute, I'm confused. Him. So it's okay for them to kill the monkey, but not the cat? Is that what you're saying? Well, I guess it's just because it, he was actually beating it to death with a pipe <laughs> or something. That, that was just too much for audiences. Yeah. So they actually took it out because they really Fair wanted enough. people to be the, on uh, the side. I did not know that. <laughs> I want to see that footage. It's the, actually interesting. The thing that I found really, uh, really interesting about the ending, 
I can't have been the only person who really wanted to see what the merging of Jeff Goldblum, Gina Davis, <laughs> and the third thing that I won't get into for spoiling it for people who haven't seen it. I really wanted to see what that thing was going to be. I kind of wanted to see the fly with his bad haircut. Like, why did he have to lose the haircut when he turned into the fly? And by the way, don't they have hairdressers on set in the 80s? What is up with Jeff Goldblum's hair in this movie? And did you notice that he has the same hair as Gina Davis? Like, the exact same hairstyle. It's sort of like that attraction. Like, you know, when you're attracted to people that look like you, I kind of have a feeling that's why the two like hooked up and met. They probably broke they up. They look he... very similar in the movie. I agree. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that they broke up when he cut his hair or changed his hairstyle. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but I mean, and this movie, we, sh- we should warn people, is really graphic and gory. Like, Videodrome is more like pushing towards like sexual perversions, but like the fly, I mean, it gets down and dirty towards the end. And once again, the effects is done by Chris Wallace. And um, I mean, the, when when he's the fly and he drops the acid on on uh, what's his face? Again? John gets John gets his character and his you basically see like his flesh just start burning off and all the way down to like the bones. Like, oh, my God, to this day. Like, I mean, I saw this movie when I was a kid also, but I still have to sort of like look away every time I watch it. It's, it's pretty brutal. The uh, last thing I wanted to mention about this film that I love is it does not waste a second. If I'm not mistaken, the first shot of the film after the credits is actually Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis are already just talking to each other. There's no here's the setup, here's let's, let's, no, it, it gets right to the point and there's not a second wasted uh, over, over the runtime. It's a, it's a really, really well-paced film. Yeah, I agree. And I, and I think, I think you know, I, I don't know, did Cronenberg write this? I don't know who the scriptwriter was, but I, you got to give credit to the, to the screenplay because it is adapted, like I said, from the short story and it is somewhat a remake of the original film. But the way they change it, like, it's just perfect. Like, it gets right into the story. We, we understand what he's created, why he's created how it works, you know, it, it's no offense, it's not like Inception where you spend two hours talking about the <laughs> rules. Um, and then it gets straight into the story, and I think it's great. Uh, there's no time wasted in this film. Like, it's like every frame of the fly is is essential to the story. Yep. Actually, on the topic of uh, the fact that it's a remake, I think it was recently announced, too, that Cronenberg is going to remake it again himself, if I'm not mistaken. Really? And yeah, is, is I have it, no idea why. To, to or be fair, he announces a whole means, lot of but... projects, and they don't always all wind up happening. Well, I know he's working on the sequel to—is it History of Violence or Eastern Pro- East, uh, Eastern Promises? I think it was Eastern, Eastern Promises. Promises. Yeah, so he's working on the sequel to that, but uh, I don't know. I didn't hear about a remake. To, a remake or a sequel? A uh, remake, apparently. Wow, and they that's... are doing a musical as well, but a musical. <laughs> to... <laughs> okay, that's yeah. a great idea. <laughs> Uh, a musical to the fly is actually an awesome idea. And have you guys ever seen the? Um, I know it played in Toronto, it played here in Montreal. The Evil Dead musical. I didn't know. Because uh, if, if it ever comes back to Toronto, you guys have to check out the Evil Dead musical. It is amazing. Uh, and if you sit within like the first five rows, you're gonna get splattered with blood. Um, and I also saw the Texas Chainsaw Massacre musical. Not as good. Uh, apparently now they're doing a the Fight Club musical. It's it's like they're gonna take. Every, it's like that's gonna be the new thing. It's like instead of remaking the movies that we loved when we were kids, they're just gonna remake them as musicals. I'm not so sure if that's a good thing or not. Hmm. I guess it depends. Something to throw out to our. I think listeners. the fly is the perfect material for a musical. I agree. But it's that was gonna be like a a real musical, right? I believe so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. No offense to the Evil Dead musical, but like uh, I could see that as almost an opera. Oh, for sure. Especially since Cronenberg has experience directing operas, so... 
Well, it says here that he's in post-production on A Dangerous Method. Um, that's his next film coming out, uh, which stars Viggo Mortensen. So I'm assuming that's the uh, the sequel. No, no, it's not. That's it's about, not? That's about, that's about Freud. And oh, is it? Because yeah. then he's doing Cosmopolis, apparently. Cosmopolis? Yeah. I Cosmopolis. Don't yeah, I don't know what that is. So there's no mention of the fly. He doesn't have it. On, he doesn't have the fly on his docket. So hopefully it's not happening. Not yet. All yeah, right. Well, I think actually somebody announced a remake of Videodrome at some point as well. So ah. I, I have no idea. But well, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they remake the fly. But I don't think Cronenberg's uh, going to actually remake it. Uh, but you know, that's how it is on the internet. Like you know, when they a rumor pops up about so and so remaking a movie, and the next day you find out it's not true, right? Um, yeah. All right. So to wrap, he almost the... kind of remade Videodrome himself with Existence. He, yeah, he totally did. Don't. Mm-hmm. In fact, don't they both feature the, the, that same line of dialogue? Uh, I'll hail the new it... flesh, death to X. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I believe so. I noticed that, and and I, Existence isn't my favorite Cronenberg either. So maybe that has something to do with it. Mm-hmm. So you like more like the Cronenberg films where he like transforms people into like evil, hideous creatures. Uh, like rabid, like shivers, e- evil, like... evil, hideous creatures, or Jeremy Irons. Yes, or Jeremy Irons. I love Dead Ringers. It's a great film. All right, so I guess we should wrap it up. I guess that's our show for today. Uh, now, before we go, though, I did want to ask you guys over in Toronto. Um, we go to the Toronto International Film Festival, and sometimes we even go to Toronto After Dark. And in, in any case, we go to Toronto pretty often, and I assume a lot of our listeners do too. I mean, you guys have some huge festivals that happen down in your city. Um, can you recommend to not only us, but our listeners, some great places to go in the Toronto area for movie buffs, like be it video stores or cinemas, uh, you know, theaters, vintage clothing shops, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, I guess you already mentioned two of the big festivals. There's also hot docs, which we try to go to every year, uh, North by Northeast, which is kind of trying to grow into the, uh, you know, northern equivalent to South by Southwest, but not quite as big yet. Uh, but in terms of, like, places to go, obviously there's the new Bell Lightbox, uh, which just opened up this past year. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like the the headquarters now for TIFF, but it's uh, they also have great screenings all the time. I think they have a Tim Burton exhibit going on there right now. Um, there's also some really cool independent theaters like the Blur Cinema, uh, the Toronto Underground, which I haven't been to yet, but um, they have lots of cool stuff going on there. There's also uh, an interesting uh, little place called Trash Palace, which is uh, they show 16 millimeter uh, obscure films, and uh, it's kind of at an undisclosed location downtown, so you have to go to their website, trashpalace.ca, to get the info for that. And um, I don't know, in terms of DVD stores or anything, Jay, do you have any? recommendations for that uh i like suspect video mm-hmm. which is around the corner from honest ads is that the exactly. one sort of near blur cinema yep oh yeah i love that place yeah my friend al our co-host al actually moved to toronto and he lives right around the corner so he brought me there yeah it's a great video store they're really good for cult films yeah uh i mean they don't have too much for sale they have a lot to rent but the stuff they do have for sale is pretty interesting and it's really reasonably priced so i would i would recommend suspect video right. there's also queen queen video as well which is i haven't really been to it i don't it's think all rentals it's... um but and bay street video is good as well which i can never find i've never found bay street video it's on I, bay street I, I know it's on bay street <laughs> but somehow I, I i guess i keep walking by it i've never found it um that's awesome we should do this again one day in the future thank you so much 
Um, and once again, can you just plug Film Junk? Where can our listeners find you online? Uh, filmjunk.com, twitter.com slash filmjunk, twitter.com slash jchill. And I, I'll, I'll mention that I have a, actually have my first feature documentary film coming out this year, probably in the spring, called Beauty Day. Okay. And uh, you can find information about that at www.beautydaydocumentary.com. Will, and, will uh, we have a chance to see it at any of the film festivals coming up? Um, yes. Okay. Uh, I, I don't. I haven't really been able to announce any uh, festivals yet. Um, so I'm. I'm kind of waiting. Like we have a couple of. Uh, like we're in to some festivals, but you just can't announce er- it. It's too early to announce. Right. Um, but we will be playing some festivals, and I can say it. It does have Canadian theatrical distribution, so it will get a limited theatrical release. Nice. Awesome. Um, so you can w- watch out for that. I would imagine it would hit Montreal. So can we ask you what the uh, the film's about? Uh, it's about a, <clears throat> a guy named Ralph Zavadil who did a cable access show called Captain Video in the early '90s, and it was kind of like Jackass, uh, like five years before Jackass uh, was started. And he had a an accident where he jumped off of a ladder and was trying to take the cover off his his pool and ended up um, crushing the vertebrae in his neck and and it got a lot of attention on reality TV shows and America's Funniest Home Videos and whatnot. So all these years later, I caught up with him because I used to watch his show when I was a kid and I just kind of, it's a film about his life since then and catching up with him and him shooting a 20th anniversary show of his original TV show. So it's it's kind of looking at that sort of like working class uh, blue collar art, um, video art and coming back with a, an analog uh, style TV show in the digital age, uh, 20 years older and maybe a little behind the times. <laughs> and uh, it's kind of like a American movie style uh documentary that sounds awesome yeah i'm really (laughs) looking forward to that really sounds amazing that's awesome um all right so we're going to take it out with a clip from the fly and i believe simon you got some music uh we do but rick what's our website what's what's going on there? uh soundinsight.ca our website has um (laughs) i don't want to talk about our website right now uh soundinsight.ca visit our website also (laughs) why don't you okay well you know why i don't want to talk about our website right now (laughs) yeah there's there's a spot of controversy we probably shouldn't discuss another uh, magazine has stolen our template but are we taking another local magazine has stolen our template so we're gonna take this out with ladyhawk i think here in montreal you've been listening to the official podcast of soundonsite.ca i asked the computer if it had improved me and it said it didn't know what i was talking about and that's made me think very carefully about what I've been feeling and why, and I'm beginning to think that the sheer process of being taken apart out and by out and put back together again, why it's like coffee being put through a filter. It's somehow a purifying process. It's purified me. It's cleansed me. And I'll tell you, I think it's going to allow me to realize the personal potential I've been neglecting all these years that I've been obsessively pursuing goal after goal. Do you normally take coffee with your sugar? What? You know, I just don't think I've ever given me a chance to be me. But, of course, interestingly, at the exact same moment that I uh, achieved what will probably prove to be my life's work, that's the moment when I started being the real me, finally. So, uh, 
Listen, and not to wax messianic, but uh, it may be true that the synchronicity of those two events might blur the resultant individual effect of either individually. But it is uh, uh, nevertheless also certainly true. I will say now, however uh, subjectively, that uh, human teleportation, molecular decimation, breakdown, and reformation is inherently purging. It makes a man a king. From the moment I walked out of the pot, I felt like a million bucks. You know, I think I am going to have a, a cannoli after all. Waiter! I mean, what an accomplishment. But what have I really done, though? All I've done is say to the world, let's go, move, catch me if you can. Waiter, Jesus Christ. Touch my soul and your face.